co-host Darren. And I'm your co-host Matt. And today we're actually progressing into discussing the first Witcher novel, Blood of Elves. Like sinking yes. into a warm, cozy bath. <laughs> so for those of us, those of you who, like, have listened to previous episodes inattentively, um, um, Blood of Elves is the first book in the Witcher series that is an actual single novel in terms of one single coherent narrative for the well, I mean, I guess depending on your font size, but in, in the case of Lithuanian <laughs> translations, it's about, it's about 200 pages, so um, It's a book It's not just an anthology Indeed, basically. it's a book It's a book. Yeah, which is um, pretty exciting I am, yeah, I'm just um, thrilled to get into it um, It marks a pretty significant change um, from the short stories um, in terms of the short stories being really about Geralt and in Geralt's head, whereas Blood of Elves we start sort of really expanding into to other characters and, and from different perspectives. Yeah, yeah it basically, well, it, it's from the very start. You start from the perspective of Ciri having flashbacks and but basically like a PTSD flashback. Yeah. Um, like... Well, we start we start with Athlina's prophecy, which we should probably. Oh yes, of course the, yeah the, in, the, yes. the between the chapters, of course, in all the books they put in quotations and stuff that are generally relevant. So in this one, it's Athlina's prophecy, which is you know the time of the sword and axes nigh, era of wolf's blizzard, etc. Yes. etc. Et yes, is this the first time it gets mentioned in the series? Obviously, people who've watched the show, this is the. Um... The prophecy that they have Siri speaking it when is, she has the her first little episode. Time. It is the first time. Yeah. Like, like um, that. None of this was there in the short stories. Yeah. So this is the first time it gets mentioned. Then. So I mean, we did um, briefly discuss um, while we were um, talking about the interstitials in um, the Last Wish that there was um, some mention of environmental catastrophe incoming, but that. Well, let's not get as far as that yet, because to be to, to be totally clear, Iflin's prophecy for now is just a scary prophecy about what sounds like the the, the end and then the reincarnation of the world. Something about you know uh, the world dying and being and being reborn. Yeah. So it's uh, so Iflin's prophecy um, goes like this. Uh, Verily I say unto you, the era of the sword and axe is nigh, the era of the wolf's blizzard, the time of the white chill and the white light is nigh, the time of madness and the time of contempt. Ted Ted Dere, I think, would be... Ted Dere, the time of end. The world will die... That's how I would say it. Sorry? I think that's how it's pronounced in the games. Like, okay, so, again, to be fair, right, like, so, I, I I just need to say something here, because otherwise... Oh, my Gaelic speaking followers. Oh, of course, very yes, angry the gal. Um, <laughs> like, so the thing is, uh, like, 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 um, who fucking knows how Sapkowski thought it was going to be pronounced? Because again, fictional language. Um, but mm. the thing, the thing about the word about the second word um, is that that is an actual Gaelic word, and it oh. does in fact mean the end. Um, like. So in Gaelic, you would say Jerek. Oh. Well, then we should stick to All that right. then. <laughs> Jerek. Okay. okay. Ted Jerek. Is that right? Ted I think, Jerek, I think the so. time of I end. think so. If, if, if I've got it wrong, people will yell at me. But like by my understanding of how I would pronounce it in my classes, it would have been Jerek. Okay. Um, it's, yeah, see, so this is what's great, actually, about um, how he's sort of 
crafted his language out of mostly stealing Gaelic words. Having someone on the podcast who actually kind of speaks Gaelic, very helpful. <laughs> Quite. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So let's assume it's Ted Jerich, or it's just going to annoy lots of people. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, Ted Jerich, the time of end. The world will die amidst frost and be reborn with the new sun. It will be reborn of the elder blood of Hen Icher. Icher, of the seed. Latin blood. Uh, oh, of course. Hen Icher of the seed that has been sown. A seed which will not sprout but will burst into flame. Uh, as Tua essay, thus it shall be. Watch for the signs. What signs these shall be, I say unto you. The first the earth will flow with the blood of the Ein Shi, the blood of elves. So... It's uh, it's it's not a good time. <laughs> Fun, you know, like 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 yeah. good stuff. Hell of a way to open a story. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's 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 a very it's very retro fantasy fair. Immediately start with with a prophecy about the end of the world. Yes. Yeah. 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 So I suppose we probably shouldn't. I guess I was I was I was gonna. Let's not get into what it actually is yet. Yes. Yeah. Suffice so it to say, it's pretty important. Just remember, this is a very <laughs> deterministic world where. Um, prophecy kind of matters. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. That's all um, we'll say. Because it's proven already by this time, it is canon that prophecy can be done as a thing, as in like, as in like, certain certain kinds of people for certain reasons can make accurate prophecies about the future. Um, because yeah. and and what they what the prophecy will happen will happen and destiny doesn't have a statute of limitations verbal contracts are incredibly bad <laughs> yes <laughs> apparently <laughs> so anyway Indeed. we open with um, a scene of utter chaos and destruction Sentra is burning yeah it's you know time of axe and sword and all that we just get Stac- very a staccato writing style with very raw and visceral emotions and sensations and Series having a bad time, basically. It's a very, it's a very, it's a very impressionistic sequence. I like it. Like it, it like really puts you in mind of how Siri's feeling. It, there's a bit mm-hmm. Guernica sort of vibe to it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because we don't get a clear sequence of events, but we do get sort of the horror of how she's she's feeling of, of blood and, and smoke and pain and fear. Though it is sort of playing out somewhat like it does in 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 the sh- in the show that she's sort of on horseback with with a knight. One falls, uh, another one carries her forward until she's uh, captured by the Nilf Guardian. Mm. Yeah, and then she um, awakes with a start. Well, so this is a, a, yeah, this, the perspective it's from her perspective and then suddenly she wakes up and she's with Geralt and then it's this sort of more neutral perspective which is when, you know, yeah. Sapek is starting now to play around with perspective. Yes. Um, what I really love is um, Geralt's telling her to calm down that it's just a dream, that it's going to be okay and it says that you know, Siri had had heard such reassurances in the past. They'd been uh, repeated to her endlessly many, many times. She'd been offered comforting words when her screams had woken her during the night. But this time it was different. Now she believed it because it was Geralt of Rivia, the white wolf, the witcher who said it. And it was like, oh. Yeah, he's a good boy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's a hell of a way to open a book, really. Yes. And it's 10 out of 10. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, I found myself like immediately falling like right back into this. Just like, yeah. <laughs> well, this is, I think I actually, you know, this as a starting intro to The Witcher, it's a good, like the next bit will come into more detail as well, obviously. But as an introduction to the themes and everything, this is 
illustrating Sapek as an author really efficiently. <laughs> you know. Yeah, for real. Like, 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 like. I mean, as I've mentioned before, this is kind of where I started reading mm. um, the books a long time ago, and it certainly throws you like quite neatly into the deep end, like, 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 in a in a good way. That like, um, you're immediately familiarized with some of the themes of what the story is going to be about. Yeah, like I um, like this is sort of a, a, a bit about what comes next. But I was I was thinking about that actually about how you'd said that you'd sort of started with Blood of Elves, and of course people in the English speaking world um the they, they'd had the last wish, but then um, Sword of Destiny didn't get published until after all of the other books. I was thinking about that, but actually this chapter, especially the next bit with Dandelion, it it kind of manages to give you exposition of all of the important points, but without making it feel like exposition. Mm. It's quite good. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I do think that, like, actually, like, when Sapuk was writing this, uh, like, I think the fact that for the, like, this book uh, is an actual coherent singular novel instead of anthology of short stories. Um, and in the case of The Last Wish, for that matter, short stories that, like, had been published elsewhere. Uh, and so, mm-hmm. Like, because this is an actual coherent book, I feel like he felt that he needed to start it off a, as a... Well, not exactly recommended, but possible standalone read. Um, mm-hmm. Like, like uh, just because, like, I mean, I feel like that's something you do kind of subconsciously if you had written, like, several short stories, but now you're actually writing a novel that's a follow-up to them. Um, I feel like you treat the short stories um, less as the previous installment of a saga and more as the prequel. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's, like, that's, that's sort a of way of thinking of it. Like, like sort of the same way in which, like, I mean, like, obviously slightly different, but like kind of, kind of the same. How you can absolutely read Lord of the Rings if I had read all. Right. Yeah, it is a bit like that. Or Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I am fascinated. Like, I mean, like, I, I now kind of genuinely want to find uh, a Star Wars, like, you know, a person who has never watched a Star Wars film and inflict a new trilogy on them first and see what happens. <laughs> no. Oh, no. no. Nobody deserves that. Um, and see, just, just, just see what their impressions are, because I'm curious. <laughs> oh, the horror. <laughs> <laughs> Start the to be fair, you could probably get away with the first two, but then the third one kind of. I mean, you'd get away mm. with the first two, but like also, you know, like uh, I, I'm genuinely just because like it's it's such a foreign concept to me. I can't imagine what that is like. <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah. Because <laughs> we just assume that the star the other Star Wars films are there. Let's show you the least interesting ones first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get these out of the way. <laughs> like, so you can end on a good note. Like, say what you will about the prequels. They were at least interesting. Say what you will about them, but they oh. had an ethos. <laughs> they had an ethos. They were trying to do some interesting things with the design. They had a reason to exist, and actually they're like unintentionally so funny that they are worth watching. They're quite charming, they are actually, at least in their own they, way. They are charming films in their own way. Because yeah, they, they were a I, labor of love. Like George Lucas really believed in what he was doing. Yeah, he just yes. had nobody to yeah, tell him no. <laughs> like it's the it's, the, it, it's he... the problem that he believed in what he was doing. But like, <laughs> <laughs> but 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 yeah, no, no, like I mean, genuinely, there's 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 a lot there that is actually not an enjoyment. Mm. Uh, yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, back agreed. to herding <laughs> yes, the cats. Back cats. to the subject. So we move. <laughs> yeah. We move on from this traumatic scene in very sapic manner to a much more um, 
pleasant scene, which is, you know, dandelion, or as it's spelled in this book, dandelion. Um, <laughs> dandelion. Yeah, or, or Yaskier, let's stick with that. Um, <laughs> he's performing a ballad that turns out to be about, you know, the line, the, the cub of Sintra, and getting as, himself as into trouble. Are, as, as we are informed by the crowd, who immediately, yes. like, say, go on then, master, tell us what happened afterwards, because he clearly doesn't finish the story. Like, if you're not gonna sing it, could you at least tell us in prose? He's trying to copy, like, you know, get get out this by saying that, like, he never sings about real people, which is obviously <laughs> a lie, and everyone knows it for a lie. And, 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 and this, this, this is, this is actually like, um, it's probably worth noting, like, like you know, like um, before we get into exactly how this crowd devolves in discussing the story of Geralt and the Lion Cup of Sintra, uh, like that, like how Sapic describes this crowd, because um, mm-hmm. it's actually like, I, I, like to be honest, like, like even when I read the first time, I remember that was my favorite fucking sequence, uh, like the favorite handful of paragraphs in this sequence, um, where he where he talks about how, uh, where he where he just describes the crowd listening to Dandelion sing this ballad under an, oak tree, an ancient oak tree, where he says, you know, like uh, the like uh, it was it was a crowd divided by like you know race and class and um uh, the dwarves stayed aside from the humans and the elves and and only they tolerated um gnomes and halflings beside them while the while the uh elves stood aloof from everyone else uh while the humans feuded amongst (laughs) each other like and you know um oh this was um i the nobles and the wizards and and the peasants all um, aggressively ignored each other. It's it's great. What I love is that there's a very much like an I believe the children are the future bit right after that. <laughs> yes. It, you know, it says all non-humans are uniformly distant towards humans. The humans are paid in kind, but were not seen to mix amongst themselves either. Nobility looked down on the merchants and traveling salesmen with open scorn, while soldiers and mercenaries distanced themselves from shepherds and the reeking sheepskins, etc., etc., etc. The exception, as ever, was the children. Freed from the constraints of silence which had been enforced during the party's performance, the children dashed into the woods with wild cries and enthusiastically immersed themselves in a game whose rules incomprehensible to all those who had been bidden farewell to the happy years of childhood. Children of elves, dwarves, halflings, gnomes, half-elves, quarter-elves, and toddlers of mysterious provenance, neither knew nor recognized racial or social divisions, at least not yet. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I love this, this scene, precisely because it's just, it's, it's, it's such a, it's such a we live in a society but <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I love that scene as well. It had that singled out in my notes, especially because of his whole lovely, like, children don't know racism. Yeah. Yet. Really lovely. Great. Yet. <laughs> Yet. Which is the irony but of like, him being an also, economist. The, the, the thing is as well, is that, like, it's actually really, really nice because, like, um, it doesn't just reduce us to all these social conflicts. He also says, but the thing is, you know they're something you internalize by the time you not like yeah. this this the, these mutual hatreds in this society and by that metric in our society are not somehow inherent or inborn yeah they're not genetically programmed really... <laughs> they are yeah, they yeah are which exogenous I think... yeah which i think is great for a fantasy series because fantasy has a real habit of being like 
elves are just so inherently sad and distant, and dwarves are just so inherently grumpy, and, no and one everyone can hates the because... orcs. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Whereas this is just like, no, man, they're just people, and the kids are just kids, like every other kid. The conflicts here are adults supposed being to be adults being dumb. They are conflicts that are comparable to our conflicts in the real world. They are not magical internal conflicts between fantasy races yeah yeah it's great it's it's a, it's, yes. it's 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 <laughs> continuing to explore the particular ways of the previous previous pre- the prior short stories conceive of fantasy race and you know that's nice yes and we get quite a lot more about the sort of um racial conflict in this this world as, as we carry on the story which is just like just a, it's such good such a good way of handling all of the exposition that needs to happen but it's done through this crowd and he's such a good writer that like i didn't actually realize really until this was probably my third read through just before we started recording it didn't it took me until then to realize like oh he's just doing exposition because i was so caught up in like his writing until then yeah pretty much it's he's just the thing is he gets across a lot of information about the politics of the world pretty straightforwardly and efficiently just by describing how these people are interacting with each other and kind of say yes look these they do fit some of the sort of stereotypes about it, but also here's where I'm making it different. Um, and you can sort of tell a lot of the inter-race rivalries by, you know, um, they talk about, oh, these, what is it, some of them, they're talking about dandelion running off, and it's like, oh, that's, you know, they're saying, oh, that's human-like, or that's dwarf-like, or that's, or that's let's, let's, elf-like. Let's, let's back up here. That's, that's yeah, but that's, yes. that's a bit ahead. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's a bit of stuff before that, but, yeah. you know, he's very efficient yeah 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 so they all start arguing over whether or not dandelion's story is true or not and here's how we get kind of if you hadn't read the short stories quite a bit of the exposition about what's happened to siri and kalanthi and pavetta um through them arguing over whether or not this was possible and i love how um, my favorite thing is when the, the priest, there's a priest that cuts in and is just like, oh, no, you don't understand the meaning of this because you don't have love in your hearts. You're like empty barrels. It is all like an allegory. None of it is real. And then immediately people start cutting in with, I've, I've met Geralt. It's, it, yeah, it's, it's, all about, it's all about the fact that like we're all like, you know, tools in the hands of faith. Also, um, uh, not, not precisely priest, druid. Oh, was it? Th- Sorry, there's a druid and a priest. Like there? they're they're um, using confusing language, but like the priest is implied. Like the word, the 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 one that like is translated as a priest in the English, um, is implied to be the druid's apprentice. Oh, okay, okay, because yeah, in the yeah in the English, there's there's a, a gray haired druid in a white cloak, and then there's a short fat priest. Like I, I suddenly, I suddenly know. Like I, I, I suddenly feel like feel like I understand why you don't find the druids annoying when you didn't realize that that the priest was also a druid. <laughs> no, yeah, because we've got the one who's described as a druid just saying like trying to calm people down and stop having a race war, basically, because a dwarf and a human start fighting, basically, and the druid tries to calm them down. But then like the next guy is written in as a as a short fat priest, so I assumed he was one of the eternal flame guys. No, the, the, those are never mentioned again. <laughs> like, no, no, no. He's part of the Druid Circle. He's 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 their he's their evangelist. Uh, you're not you're not getting the 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 the, the um 
like uh, you're you're not getting re- re- any religious group in this series that are not going to be patronizing at it. <laughs> uh, this is why I never found the druids annoying. Then maybe the English translation makes all the annoying ones not literally say druid. <laughs> like, this like is a the, really you have you have to understand that uh, if there is one thing that. Um, like Sapkowski is very particular like you know um <laughs> um <laughs> 90s like uh eastern european liberalism shines through and it's like it's like bordering on edgelord atheist disdain for religion in all cases including the druids <laughs> uh, my good tree boys <laughs> No, they're they're going they're, they're 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 like also to be fair to be fair right like to be fair to the priest like he was also trying to like um extremely embarrassingly tell people that they don't understand anything they should they should like you know like 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 um uh, also um like care about the gods and nature and whatnot. Um, which is basically what the same thing as what the older dude was saying, except, except he was just slower about it. <laughs> um, I mean, I did have in my notes that he was doing an English major. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, no, no. This is all an allegory. You can't read this literally. <laughs> yeah, literally. Like, and then people just go, nope. Like, we, we know that this is real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's like, no, we, we've, we've met Geralt, actually. <laughs> Some of us and have Gaffer. met Geralt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he is real and my friend. <laughs> like, um, but this is the thing, though. Like, you know, these guys are trying to basically warp out of dandelion, um, like uh, the truth of what happened to Siri and Geralt afterwards, because they almost immediately extrapolate that it's about Siri and Geralt. Yes. Like, there's some people there, like who are. Like, I actually love how, like, confused about the truth everyone is, because there are some people there who are insisting that Siri never existed, um, that, that yeah. she's made up, like, that she's been, that they've been to Sintra many times, and they know that, like, the king and queen here, the queen there didn't have an heir, um, like, before somebody, you know, corrects that actually they did have a princess, she died, Siri's her daughter. You know, this whole thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, um, Yes, which is yeah. So we get we we get sort of caught up on on what happened with Calanthe and Pavetta as well. If we haven't read the anything else, which is that you know um, Pavetta died at sea, um, and Ceres raised by Calanthe. Um, I think it, it it gets a bit meta when they're talking about um, you know, it's like oh, you know, um, they're getting to the meat and bones of it, saying oh, Ceres it was the daughter, Pavetta's the the mother who died see, and you know getting this into is, all the this details is, this is of by it. the way like really fucking clever because like um through this dialogue between lots of people who only know bits and pieces of the story um like by kind of putting it together uh sapa gives us a recap yeah, yeah. And he tells I, I us exactly really what happened clever way of doing it it's it's giving it's the so reader clever. credit for their intelligence to be able to work out what's going on just by themselves Without yeah. just going, and East, who begot as the father of and <laughs> husband of, which, which, you know, some fantasy authors kind of can fall into being, you know, history, um, you know, fictional history writers rather than storytellers. This is just storytelling. In, in a lot of fantasy, you'll see that, like, um, like, like a lot of fantasy books try to do a recap in some capacity at the beginning of the story, right? Um, mm-hmm. and um, 
a lot of them really do go like especially like in later installments of a given story they they try to do recaps um I mean, I don't know why I said especially. Only in later installments of a story can you do recaps. <laughs> I'm sorry. Anyway. The point is, in later installments of a story, many fantasy writers try to do recaps. And very often, yeah. they don't really seem to know how exactly to do it. Um, so they so so what they usually go for is a literal recap in the sense that there is, a, like, at the beginning, there is a summary of what happened in the last couple of books ooc colon <laughs> yeah seriously like i mean especially if you look at a lot of a lot of cheaper fantasy that's been mm. out these days because um not to dunk on anyone in particular because I, I i promise i promise you i don't have specific offers in mind but you know you know those like less known fantasy offers that also simultaneously somehow seem to constantly make books mm. like yes. that seem to have produced like 20 books and you flip and you flip open a, bu- a book of theirs at the, at the fucking bookshop and you look at the list like uh, you, you know because at the beginning there will always be a list of i've got this many books in this saga and this many books in this other saga and i started publishing in 2017 and in, to- in my total number of books is about 23 and it's like and, and you're always you're always surprised by how they're simultaneously so prolific and so bad um like <laughs> yeah and and um like there there there's a there's a shocking number of these at least in the english-speaking world these days and 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 um they love doing a really blunt out of character recap at the very beginning where they literally just summarize what happened in the last like you know however many years of fictional history that they would like to tell us about that you need to understand this specific book and mm. i've always found that very annoying um so i'm mostly like you know saying that as like a counter example to like how not to do it as opposed to like this much more creative way in which sapic approaches it yes um, this this carries on okay, it's great. in the games as Sorry? well to a certain extent like in the second there's a bit in Witcher 2 Dandelion is the narrator for the interstitial bits which they only put in after they originally released the game because they realised it didn't tie together very well they released a special edition with little cutscenes and Dandelion narrating them <laughs> um, whereas the third one is much more clever in it like at the start of the game when you're introduced with it you ride around um, on this path with um, a character, you know, not for spoilers, and you basically just talk about all the political events which happened in the last game. Yeah, yeah, um, actually, yes, like, like The Witcher Three does do that very clever, cleverly in like the beginning sequences of the game in the White Orchard. Yeah, yeah, and so I think that again, obviously, that's a different thing, but it's it's good that the game writers took that. It's 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 done fascinatingly as well because actually the things that you recap are not things that happened in the previous games, so like um, yeah exactly so it's they like, happen off it's, screen. It's it's I mean it's not it's like less even a recap and more like setting up the backstory because like all the Witcher games are really standalone ones, um, like and and yeah that stuff happens off screen, but it's done really well. Like it's uh, yeah like actually like. The Witcher 3 specifically does handle that particular aspect of it really well. Um, Even though, like, the choices in the second game basically don't affect anything in the third game. There's only two that come to mind that are genuinely, profoundly useful yeah. in the story, but even then they're kind of side-questy. I mean, um, yeah. Like, um... 
it's the, it's the last character series, in Witcher 2 and Witcher one of the sorceresses. The Witcher does do, do this really fascinatingly where like no choices seem to actually transfer in yeah. a matterable way. <laughs> but uh, <sighs> yeah, so what we as well as you know the story going meta and them going, oh, it doesn't matter if it's not completely true. It's just you know it's a story about life and beauty and all this kind, and this is how it should be interpreted. You know, oh, the poet. One of them says, you know, the poet lied, but lied beautifully. Said the elf in the torch. <laughs> um, you know, it's not a question of poetry. I but found of facts. that. I found that elf so annoying. I swear to God. <laughs> yeah. Also, um, I'm actually completely retracting everything I said about the priest. There is no evidence, <laughs> like oh. of like of like what his relation to the druid is. The reason why I assumed that he was a he was a junior druid. Um, it's because mm-hmm. it, it like the Lithuanian translation chose a very interesting word for it. like oh. like it basically chose the TLDR is the chose the name for uh, a junior pagan priest in traditional Lithuanian culture. Oh. Um, so I assumed yeah. that like okay, so the senior priest is called a druid because fantasy. <laughs> We've got an old priest and a young priest. <laughs> <laughs> On their way to an exorcism. <laughs> okay. yeah, we do have a frightening possessed girl, so you know what. <laughs> like, you're laughing at this, but like, I mean, that was that. Like, th- this is literally this is literally how my thought process worked because uh, in ancient Lithuania you had basically um, three kinds of priests. Uh, one of one of which was was called a krivis, which was like essentially the most senior ones, like old priests, basically. Um, then you had Vedulos, which were your standard, he'll sacrifice a cow for you. Basically a junior priest. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then you had Vedulutas, which were something like Baltic Vestal virgins. Um, uh-huh. like, and they used, they used the word Vedula in the Lithuanian translation for, for the priest. Uh, so I immediately assumed the status of inferiority. Uh, <laughs> um, the... This is a call out right. to the Lofian okay, translation. So... Please use specific language when 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 making reference to real world things. Especially because druids can be pagan priests, but in this world, druids are more like a different order of magic users with a specific ethos. This is precisely it, right? Like, I mean, like, I was, I was kind of just assuming that, like, well, yeah, druids are like a specific order of magic users, but you know, they they must also have a religious component. Like, um, because I mean, they do. Yes. Like, like I mean, like, like they they are magic users, but they're magic users that are supported by a specific set of religious beliefs. Yes, and I mean, yeah, they've got an ethos. Yeah, they've got an ethos. <laughs> um... Like, so I kind of just assumed that, yeah, like they're both druids. It's just that, like, you're using basically the Lithuanian term for a junior pagan yeah. priest to refer to yeah to the priest because he's a lower ranking druid. Okay. Anyway. That makes sense. But the reason I was laughing is, like, an old priest and a young priest and, like, a scary possessed girl. That's, like, the plot of The Exorcist. Oh, yeah. Fair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so where were we? The the yes. beautiful lies and stuff. And they're having a... Yeah, they're sorting out the details of, is she alive? Isn't she? Is Geralt alive? Is he still with Yennefer? Did they get away? Is a happy ever after? And because of the timing of this bit isn't clear um initially you know because of course apec likes to jump around timelines and everything mm-hmm. like that you know you you mm-hmm. as the reader coming into this are like oh what did happen to Geralt and yen and, and it's 
is clever, as we've yeah, said yeah. multiple yeah. times. Yeah. Yeah, we have that introduction so that we know that Geralt found Siri and she's alive, because we've got that introduction, even if we hadn't read the short stories. Mm. Um, but we can see their confusion. We don't know like every detail of how it happened. And of course, all of this fighting over what happened in Sintra, what happened with the Nilfgaardians, um, also leads to an argument um, because um, a skelliger was able to you know cut in and be like look i know sintra yeah because as you know the king of sintra is a skelliger and i know what happened and this leads into a discussion about the war with Nilfgaard and what happened at sodden hill um which starts exposing more of the um tensions between the people in the crowd uh because of suspicions about where people's loyalties lie and there's sort of a, a racial component yeah. to that to, um, to which, of course, the druid says, we are all children of Mother Earth, because he's, he's a druid and happy. <laughs> um, yes, because I love the druids. <laughs> but um, in this in this um, bit, I actually really end up, like, I, I pretty much stand for the dwarves throughout this entire series, and Sheldon Skaggs is just Shul- pretty Sheldon good. is fantastic, and <laughs> I'm fully behind him in everything. <laughs> anyway, if we... Before before we get into discussing specific people here, though, um, mm-hmm. because if we get into discussing specific people, we will just end up retelling basically the entire dialogue they have, um, mm-hmm. because there like so many characters appear here, like you know, minor mm-hmm. will only be mentioned once again, if ever, characters, mm-hmm. um, that 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 like there is no way to mention them all without literally reading out the dialogue. Mm. Yeah, so. Let's play that game I mentioned. Who yeah. do you yes, think are spies? Yes. <laughs> Mags, your guess. Your, your guess. Well, there's definitely there's Nilfgaardian spy there, because events. <laughs> we work that out pretty soon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but like, which characters do you think are spies? Yeah, assuming we don't know the next scene, who who's acting like a spy? One of the elves, probably. I actually think that the annoying elf is not a spy at all because I've seen useful idiots. He's one of them. <laughs> <laughs> See, that was my debate too. I think he was. Um, he's. I, I thought. Oh, you know, he's acting like an elf guardian spy. But then I was like, he's being really loud about it, though. He's literally just. Which not, is. He's not a spy. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I actually, I actually think definitely, definitely Vera Vera Lovenhaupt or. Oh yeah, she's on my list. She is. She is. Um, definitely. She is one hundred percent a spy. Um, I couldn't say who's, um, but she's behaving like one. Yes, she's trying to, like, in a way that is covered by her being just, like, an emotional lady, trying to find out more details about the story and really pressing him on it. And also, being a merchant who travels, she's, like, got the perfect cover. Mm. Uh, yeah, as, like, I also I also think the knight, what's his name? Um, Donimir of Dominia. Troy. Yes, ah, seriously, see, I was Troy. Radcliffe, maybe. Um, like Donimir of Troy is probably probably Vizimir's spy. Mm, yeah, maybe. I was thinking Radcliffe of Oxenfurt just because like it just seems like everyone associated with like that location. Radcliffe is either the wizard spy or uh, King Demovents because he is literally his advisor. Yeah, yeah. So I'm thinking he must be a spy. Yeah, he's somebody's spy at the very least his own. Um, yes. Uh, Sheldon is just a good boy, so. No, Sheldon, Sheldon's, Sheldon's a, a lad. Defend Sheldon. <laughs> <laughs> Sheldon. Sheldon Skaggs is the only rationally thinking person 
in this entire crowd. I don't disagree with him yes. once. Yeah. Um. So shall we get into why Sheldon is such a good boy? Yeah. Yeah. He basically <laughs> okay. he basically, so basically gives everyone a rant that um like all this all this disunity um in the northern kingdoms uh, is going to lead to geopolitical doom because the Nilfgaardians were only just barely stopped as we find out um in the fairly yes. recent so like- first Nilfgaardian war um and not pushed out of syndrome. Yes. Yeah, so it's a good long rant about how um, we need concord and unity to because Nilfgaard is a unified, powerful force, and this is a ragtag bunch of disunified kingdoms of free-ish people against an evil empire, basically. Yeah, I wonder what his point of reference was for that. <laughs> 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 offer yeah well speaking of cold war <laughs> speaking of cold war politics the point that the elf makes is like also extremely cold war politics right um about how at least uh oh i actually thought that this yeah, was a lot be- more nazi germany if, if if anything like um but yeah oh no no not that point the point about um about how there won't be elves allowed to be in charge here and then other other people sort of snap about Nilfgaard preaching equality because they're elves themselves mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, um, <laughs> like, admittedly, the the elf does go on like an entire, really annoying tangent about how the war was pointless and so many people died and for what, um, like, and and Sheldon does like very correctly interrupt him with, "This is elf nonsense." Like, um, <laughs> yes, like the 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 lives lost were a necessary price so that others may live yeah. like peacefully and all. Yeah. And dot dot in salt mines. Yeah, Sapek is yes, dumping on yeah. pacifism as well. <laughs> which, yeah, you know. yeah. Um, Sheldon calls it Elvin Prattle, dim-witted rubbish. Yeah. The price that had to be paid to this was the price that had to be paid to allow others to live decently in peace instead of being chained, blinded, whipped, and forced to work in salt and sulfur mines. It was a pretty dramatic. Um, though I do think not that the elf, not defending the elf, or that is a point. I'm just saying that it does become a theme in this book that um, the elves have something of a problem with dying in combat a little bit too much so that this this perspective that life is a priceless gift that should be protected and nothing justifies wild wide scale slaughter and sacrifice of life um say, you know yeah, both like, to be fair humans, like, we later yeah. find out a very reasonable justification for why an elf would be thinking like this yeah. and why a dwarf would immediately identify this as elven prattle yeah elves be dying in battle <laughs> Elves be having low <laughs> community reproduction rates. Yeah. <laughs> All elves uh, do is die pointlessly in battle. <laughs> be infertile and die. <laughs> and life! <laughs> uh, gosh. And so, as part of this conversation about how, like, um, you know, people are accusing the elf of having been on the Nilfgaardian side at Sodden because he's like, hey, I was at Sodden too. Um, and they accuse him of having been on the Nilfgaardian side because everyone knows the Nilfgaardians are elves themselves. They're black she. And, you know, the elf snaps back that um, that's not true. They're humans, but like everyone who doesn't have blood of elves, we only started, you know, penalizing mixed relationships 25 years ago. You're all part elf. And the crowd sort of all sort of looks a bit abashed at this, basically taken as tacit agreement that they are, in fact, all part elf. So that's something about 
the elf human relationships only being sort of like discouraged strongly or legally from 25 years ago mm. which oh, yeah, by the way like um, is is uh, a significant observation because you know like how uh, when you think about the short stories like the concept of racial strife in them in general is introduced gradually over time um and especially the older short stories just don't see it as mm. um mm-hmm. so and, and even when you see it it's like relatively mild it's only with shard vice that like it really gets well, edge of the world's pretty intense um in um like obviously there's like lots of uh, there's lots of racism in Edge of the World, um, but it's specifically this kind of like I mean the humans in Posada aren't especially hateful. They they kind of mostly just um, act like the elves live over there in the mountains and they always have. Mm-hmm. Um, they do not mention the fact that they're that they're it would have been their grandfathers or something that took Dolblafana from the elves because they're. They're not. They're mm-hmm. not even thinking about it, per se. Um, well, the there we get we, from that specific story. We get that they're illiterate. They only know their story. Their yeah, history yeah. from I mean, wise women. But like, pres- the book. that's precisely they, it, right? Like in the yeah. sense of like, there isn't. Yeah, there isn't know, like really. really. There is um, a historical crime that was committed, but these people don't remember it because they're illiterate. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's not like Shard of Ice where in yeah, town there's precisely saying it's, it's, it's in Shard of Ice and like a little bit in The Last Wish that we start seeing racism crop up in long established urban communities. Um, mm-hmm. And I think like, I don't know if like Sapik did this deliberately, but like I think like that, the fact that like that sort of creeps into the story instead of always having been part of it, um, combined with this line that like it was about a quarter of a century ago that like they started frowning on mixed marriages um like basically accidentally creates like a real sense of like uh progress isn't linear type world building <laughs> yeah that's yeah. I think that's interesting yeah. actually you point that out yeah like the world is actively yeah. socially regressing as we progress through the story ironically yeah, yeah. um yeah, which, like, is totally legit. I mean, in the real world, like, women's rights and, and, and like, LGBT rights, those, have, those progress patterns haven't been linear. They've gone, you know, up and down yeah. over the centuries. So it's interesting to see that reflected in a, a fictional setting. Well, to put, yeah. to put it in the bluntest possible terms, you get an Obama, you get a Trump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you do, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. You get the first black president, you get an open white supremacist immediately after. It's just, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Quite. <laughs> I just think it's also interesting that um, they they complain about the Nilfgaardians preaching equality when we were talking about kind of Cold War politics. That's, that's Cold War politics as well, is a lot of uh, propaganda against the US being like, well, look how they treat, you know, all visible minorities. Like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so. the, there's there's something Cold War politics in there, yeah. Yeah, um, but um, so yeah, they, they they argue and argue over over what actually happened and where um, Siri is now and if she's alive and and what really happened at uh, who the Nilfgaardians really are and then when they turn around to 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 
get, you know, when the druid calms them down and says, we're all children of Mother Earth, let's remember the words of poet Dandelion's song, and they turn around to ask Dandelion to continue, and he has scarpered. Yeah. But they don't ask ask him to continue. It's more that he gets mentioned okay. and they turn around and they go like, right. wait, where is he? <laughs> yes. He's taken off and it's very elf-like, very dwarf-like, human-like. Yeah. yeah. Um, which again is a cool bit of world building. Um, I, I for one think that like it's frustrating that we never see gnome on dwarf racism again. Um, <laughs> I would have liked to explore that relationship. Um, yes <laughs> like 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 i'm fascinated by the fact that the gnome commented that uh he's behaving like a dwarf and this is this is never explored again i would like to know more why do gnomes hate dwarves i mean they're both like don't like gnomes they live under mountains and stuff as well don't they they both live predominantly in Mahakam, yeah yeah they're, they're both like small trading people <laughs> Who live in so what you're saying yeah. is they're they hate each other because they have very similar ways of life yeah just yeah, the narcissism of small differences like that's that's basically most social and cultural conflict yeah just similar enough to also i mean if you're both if you're both if you're both small enough to live under mountains um that means you can fight for territory influence and power under mountains <laughs> yeah, you're competing for the same sort of um, spots, really. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah, like I mean, niche. like you know, like uh, a human doesn't really want to live in Mahakam for a good reason, like or like if they do, well, you know, like it's individual humans rather than like than it being land that humans would like to urgently seize. Um, whereas I guess you know, if you're gnomes and dwarves, well, it's entirely possible that in the past you might have had some nasty wars over that territory. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Humans and elves are both fighting over the woods and the land. Yeah. Um, but they don't, because why would they care about land. over the mountains? Their only yeah. interaction with gnomes and dwarves is trading stuff. So if anything, they would have good relations. Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> well, like, at this, least, is, this, yeah. this admittedly is kind of, you know, like, th- this is kind of ref- reflected in the, like, and it, again, I don't know to what degree deliberately, but like, whether accidentally or not, like you do, you do definitely see um, in the dwarven and gnomish attitude towards racism in human societies. It's a lot more kind of uh, what's the word circumspect uh, than that of the elves. It's like, well, yeah, of course it sucks when we have to suffer this, but at the end of the day, like, if things get really bad, we can hide in the mountains in Mahakam. Um, you know, fucking shut down the mines and and drown and you know, fucking deprive they, they the human kingdoms of all <laughs> of all metal and minerals. So yeah, they've got a, a they've got a monopoly on the the finest swordcraft and the best all the minerals. Yeah. and all of the almost yeah a huge amount of the manufacturing of all sorts of things. So yeah, they can just like tread back to the mountains and cut off the humans from quite a lot of things if they get too badly treated. Yeah. Right, so in very dandelion fashion, where he has scarpered to is um, a brothel. So He's choosing between a half-elf and a skeleton. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and as he's having a hard time making this decision, um, a stranger arrives who dandelion mistakes for someone he's been expecting, but it is not. Yes, um, and this, um, this character... Um starts trying to ease information out of him gently before well 
it becomes pretty apparent he is not he's not a sound guy <laughs> I, I had to I, laugh I, I because love, he perfectly the describes sorry go on I was saying I had to laugh because he perfectly describes a parasocial relationship <laughs> here when he goes to introduce he himself he says you know <laughs> I'm called Rience. you do not know me Master Dandelion but that is no surprise you are too famous and well known to know all of your admirers yet everyone who admires your talents feels like he knows you knows you so well that a certain degree of familiarity is permissible and this applies to me too he perfectly describes a parasocial as a parasocial relationship, relationship. it's true <laughs> like but it's 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 actually a really I, I it's it's such good writing it's like Sapik really coming into his own as di- as a dialogue writer because mm-hmm. they snark at each other like you know perfectly it's it's great yes i love um you can really feel like Riant's trying to like play the role of like he's trying to ease information out of dandelion he's trying to play the role of the overawed fan but he can't do it because he is just finds dandelion so annoying <laughs> and he just wants to snip at him yeah yeah i mean like so he tries asking nicely then he tries bribing you know he's just like <laughs> Oh, fuck's sake! Yeah, <laughs> he's also just a fucking, just a fucking bad liar. I'm not gonna lie. Like you know, <laughs> well, this is Rian's to a T, isn't it? Just like not as competent as he thinks at just about everything. Yeah, like either way, right? Like uh, <laughs> what it all ends in is that uh, Dandelion requests that Rian's leave, and Rian's just chooses to not do so and threatens him. Um, at which point, Dandelion basically fucking literally tumbles across the room and into a secret into a secret fucking passage uh, behind uh, a tapestry. Yes, and Dandelion's quite clever. He's been sort of, during the conversation, he's been getting more uncomfortable and eyeing up the distance to the, the secret passage and he knows where, like, all of the twists and turns are, so he figures if this is, like, a normal person, he can lose he can lose him easily. But unfortunately, it turns out that he is some variety of magic user and sort of stuns Dandelion and he tumbles through the wrong way out of the secret passage into the disused pigsty. Yeah, and um, this is where we discover that, you know, Reince is a uh... Is an agent of some kind and has this weird sort of torture array thing set up to like destroy um, Dandelion's hands and ruin his career and just basically he's trying to torture the information out of him now. Having done the good cop, he's doing the bad cop as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and he tells Dandelion that um, you know, he'll know if he lies, so better just tell him the truth. Yes. And Dandelion is, of course, I just obviously, like, this is a Dandelion stand podcast, but, like, he is, this is such a good scene of Dandelion being so clever and telling exactly as much truth as he needs to and not ever lying without revealing the other things that he knows. I mean, until Rian figures out what his game is and catches him out for being too eager to answer the things that he can answer safely. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, like and basically so Rian's forces him into a corner of um having to tell um him where Geralt is. Um Yes, because this is what Rian's is after. He wants to know if Ciri's alive, if Geralt has her, and where Geralt is. And he does and he does like uh, seemingly honestly Dandelion does seemingly honestly answer that he does not know the answers to those questions except that we fight like uh Rienz figures out that he's lying when he says that he doesn't know where Geralt is. 
Well, it's even it's even cleverer than that. He doesn't. He realizes that Dandelion isn't lying, but that he's telling him the exact truth, which is that he does not know where Geralt presently is, and he does not know how to get to where he suspects Geralt might be. But there is somewhere he suspects that Geralt might be at. Yeah, again, one of yeah. Sapek's <laughs> real strengths, you know, is as a writer, is that he writes clever characters well, and not in a sort of mm-hmm. clumsy or conceited way. Oh, look how smart this boy is. He doesn't overtly say it he just shows it through stuff like this mm-hmm. you know it's yeah. two well it's one character who thinks he's smart and another character who is kind of accidentally smart <laughs> and the interplay <laughs> between them is, is interesting fully, they didn't even fully catch on to that initially uh that's yeah, a good catch like the dialogue Adam, is because like I, I i i had inferred from the dialogue that like it's just that Rience noted that dandelion's answer is really fast <laughs> like yeah so the dialogue says, like, where's the witcher now, this hired monster murderer, this poetic butcher who likes to discuss his destiny? I told you the last time I saw him. And he says, I know what you said. I listened carefully to what you said. And now you're going to listen carefully to me. Answer my question precisely. The question is, if no one has seen Geralt or Gerald, because he keeps calling him Gerald, the witcher for over a year, where is he hiding? Where does he usually hide? And Dandelion says, I don't know where it is. I'm not lying. I really don't know. And what Rance picks up on is that Dandelion is too quick and too eager. You're cunning and you it's true that you don't know where it is, but you know what it is. So like Dandelion is like cleverly telling him the exact truth, which is he does not know where Caramoran is. This is this is but this he knows. is the sole yeah. like <laughs> this is the sole instance we've found so far where I think actually the English translation is much better than the Lithuanian one. Because um, the one <laughs> just obscures this a little bit by going like, yeah, like it more or less says what Rians asked him initially, and then and then it's uh, mm-hmm. then it tries it it give, it gives it as I don't know where the the troubadour answered immediately. I don't. I'm not lying. I really don't know. Um, so it's like not I don't know where that place is, as I actually pre- presume that like the original was, because mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense to me that. That's the trick. Um, like, yeah. but like, because, but like, Rian, yeah, Rian's, Rian's doesn't know the name Caramoran. Rian's, for instance, says in the Lithuanian translation, uh, like, uh, you're clever, but um, not careful. Um, you say you don't know where, but I, but I can bet that I know that that that, that you that, that you know what place it is. And that like confused me a little bit because those questions sound a lot more similar. Ah, right, yeah. yeah. So because yeah, what Rience is after is he knows he knows Dandelion isn't lying. Dandelion doesn't know where Caramoran is, but Rience doesn't know the name Caramoran. Yeah, that's what he's trying to get out of Dandelion, so he can go look for it himself. Yeah, because to be fair, I don't think like if you know the place's place's name, there's absolutely historical documents you can look up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he has the entire. But he doesn't know where. He has the entire Nilfgaardian yeah. intelligence and civil service behind him. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you don't even fucking really need that. You need someone to go to a library and look <laughs> up the history of the Witchers and say, "Where do the Witchers live?" Yeah. <laughs> so you know. Yeah. For some reason, Rians can't do that, but we all know Rians. I mean, I don't think it's a spoiler to say Rians appears later, and he's just Rians is just, just an incompetent idiot. <laughs> it's it's constant. Like, <laughs> I mean, like. Yeah, this isn't. I will. I will say this that like the impression I always got right uh, was that um, the main reason why broader society doesn't think um, like because again, Kerboran is not something that like is an obscure concept. It can pr- it can be found in historical works um, because Monstrum mentions it by name. Um, mm-hmm. Like it's um 
uh, like from what I understand, the main issue is that like broader society, like it literally does not even cross their minds that the witchers could be lurking. Like the the few remaining ones could be still wintering in the place they thought they you know like expelled them all from mm. um, and raised to the ground as far as they thought. It's like Obi Wan staying in Tatooine, you know, like 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 yeah, it's both obvious and why would you do that? Yeah, like 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 yeah. so so it so yeah, it makes sense. does not cross people's minds. Yeah, but that's what he's trying to get out of Dandelion, and uh, Dandelion sort of cleverly trying to avoid it, but it was at the point where he really would be you know getting killed or. Tr- ruined his hands or ruined his hands and then tell and then get killed either way things are about to go very very wrong for dandelion um because Rance has realized that dandelion does in fact know at least one useful thing uh when uh, a mysterious figure turns up and starts wreaking havoc yes With um, magic. a short figure wrapped in a cloak basically yen comes in and wrecks shit <laughs> yeah she starts like slitting throats and frying people she- yeah, she is not only a powerful yeah. sorceress, but Slitting really fucking badass. Names. With a with a stiletto, yes. <laughs> I like the fact that yes. she uses a stiletto, and um, that's a cool bit of stylistic writing. I think this feels like the the precedent for the show's sword yen. Yeah, mm. it, it definitely <laughs> has the like. I immediately imagine sword yen in the show, like when I yeah. read this scene. And, yeah, and I like like maybe it's just you know me being jaded but i like the fact that he uses a stiletto uh, actually referring to a stiletto which you know it's you know an italian assassin's (laughs) knife it's not just the boot and there's something quite cool about this beautiful woman coming in with an actual stiletto and murdering people with it i think that's cool (laughs) literal killer stiletto yeah i think that's a nice yes choice yeah yes (laughs) it is very cool yes so she uses magic to send an illusion in to distract them, slits a throat, fries someone, and then Rience manages to get away through a portal, but she sort of sends some fire after him, and there's some screaming, so she's clearly at least gotten him a little bit. And uh, releases Dandelion, who is promptly becomes ill over the, the sight of the corpses, <laughs> which Yen is completely blasé about. <laughs> yeah, that dude got charred so much by lightning, his teeth turned black, which, is, you know, is... Yeah, it's pretty badass. And she's just like shrug, annoying. I wish I hadn't done it that hard, so I could have questioned him. Oh well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we sort of established yeah. that, as well as her being generally badass, she had been secretly watching him under this tree, and had followed him not into the brothel. She sort of waited around, um, and is you know caught up to him, and. Also, they figure out... Yes, the brothel which she describes as the haven of dubious delight and certain gonorrhea. (laughs) (laughs) Certain gonorrhea. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and and they they sit down and have a nice... (laughs) There's a nice little bit of detail here, again, which is more exposition without being obvious exposition, where Dandelion notices that the only other person he knows who eats chicken with a knife and fork as elegantly as she does is Geralt, because Geralt had lived with her for a year in Vengerberg, and she had... Before he left her. Yes, before he left. <laughs> yeah. so, he... so again, that's catching us up really efficiently without obviously, you know, forcing it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can absolutely see how you read this as the first book and were able to just go with it, because like he does such a good job of, of filling in everything. But yes, I have a, a, a chat over their, their, their chicken and, and some wine. Um, and, 
you know, dandelion vows to to sing songs of how wizards aren't all cold hearted <laughs> and how she saved him, uh, you know, and she says, well, you know, you're not a stranger. I know you and I like you. And he's kind of um, shocked by that because last he heard from Geralt was that she hates him like the plague. <laughs> and now he has decided that all wizards are not, in fact, bastards. Yes. There's this <laughs> At one least Dan isn't. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it is, it is, it is, I have to say, while, while, while understandable that, like, given the context that she literally saved his life, are you really going to make uh, the conclusion that, like, wizards care about other people's feelings based on Yennefer of Wengerberg? <laughs> <laughs> Especially because Yennefer does pretty much say, look, it's not like you're some random. I do actually know you and like you, and I, I owe you something. <laughs> so. <laughs> it's really nice, though. <laughs> it is it's really nice yeah and I, I love that like he does bring up um the the line the, the exact wording from a little sacrifice that like i've even heard a rumor that you can't stand me i quote any more than the plague <laughs> which is the exact wording from a little sacrifice <laughs> but then she she changes the topic and she's trying to figure out like okay like so from your song you really really haven't seen Geralt since you parted on the yoruga you didn't know he went south. You didn't know that he was wounded. Like you, don't, you haven't seen. Like she's trying to figure out if he knows anything about what's happened at all. Um, um, and he's like, no, 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 really. Like I, I made it all up. Um, he talked a bit about destiny before we parted, and I made it up. Um, Dying Stray's mentioned for the first time. Yes. Um, so it turns out it's... that Dandelion had been waiting for a messenger from Dykstra, and that Yennefer is also working for Dykstra. Well. No, um, Yennefer merely passes regards on from Dykstra. Uh, and a request that he get a report in prose this time. Yeah, because... Yeah, that, because... That's, that's <laughs> yeah, she's acting as a messenger for him, which, you know, she's freelance working for him. I don't, I yeah, don't, I don't think Yen is being paid for this. This is not work. This well, is a favour no, for a friend. That's true. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's true. Like, like Yen is do, not. Do mages paid, get paid for any like, of the meddling they like, do? <laughs> I, I will, I will, I will very gently suggest that, like, if Dykstra wanted to send word to Dandelion, he would not ask Yennefer of Vungerberg. <laughs> like, as in, <laughs> as in, true. like, as in, like, if he wanted to pay someone for it, he would send an actual messenger and not go to Yennefer of Engerberg, a war hero and one of the one of the dwarf's like most powerful sorceresses and go hey would you like some gold like to pass on a message okay Yen is Yen is passing on friendly aligned with the interests of Dykstra in this matter Yen is passing on friendly greetings from common from shared acquaintances <laughs> And also the request for how the reports are to be written because poetry does not make good spy reports. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's that's the that's that's the uh, ask here. Yeah, to a T. Really. I really, think I so. love the idea that like for for months now, Dykstra has been having to deal with Yaskier coming back from a from a fucking trip and reporting his. <laughs> You know, reporting like fucking data in sensitive intelligence in in verse. In verse. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Oh. My, the other thing is, is Dandelion um suggests to Yen that she should just do a little mild necromancy. <laughs> to figure out what was he really does twice. <laughs> He's like, look, I know you killed the men, but I want to know what's going on. Can you like do something about that? <laughs> 
my gosh. And we also get the hint, um, Jennifer brings her expertise to bear to, to also um, point out that Rians is a bit of a useless magic user, so someone more powerful has to be behind this. So there's no way he could make a portal like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Andy was in a so fight. So there's a, a larger thing. And then Dandelion, with his sort of knowledge of the world, says like, well, he's a Nilfgaardian because he talked about the Battle of Sintra and no one from the North would say that. Yeah, because everyone says slaughter of Sintra. Yeah. Yes. Indeed. Which again, is Dandelion being accidentally a clever boy. Yes. Well, there's a reason why, like, I don't think I ever really refer to Dandelion as a himbo. That's that's for Geralt. Like, Dandelion is, like, a little bit too shrewd. Yeah. I, I think he's a bit too... He's, he's too cunning to be... He's cunning and he's shrewd. Yeah, which is the diametric opposite of what, opposite. Of what yes. Geralt is. Well, Geralt can be... Yes. Geralt can be astute, but he's also incredibly He's dead. astute and he's clever, but he's quite naive and... Yes, that's where the himboness comes from. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and yeah, we, they sort of yeah, Yen tells him, "Please just get out of this. You're you're getting yourself in trouble. You're going to get, you know, please just go back and stay with Dijkstra and um what's her face? Philippa. Um Yeah, and, and just don't ever think about Siri again. Sing about me, sing about whatever you want. Just leave her out of this." Yes. And so and then um Dandelion asks Yen um, sort of one more thing, which is that like if Ciri's really with Geralt and there's so much danger about Ciri, then someone has to go warn Geralt. You know where he is. You know how to get there. Like, please go warn him. And she says that she can't because she's never been there uninvited. So she's clearly like her pride is wounded. Um, and, you know, Dandelion wants to go himself, but she says he can't because his cover's blown. Um, well, I... But- there is a different reason why Yen is not going. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not that she's never been there invited. Although he, she does mention that line, and we should talk about that a bit. It's that um, uh, she knows him well enough and knows that he does not like help mm-hmm. that is unasked for, and she and he has not reached out. To her. So yeah, her pride is wounded, but it's a bit more complicated than that. Yeah. Yes. Um. And there's like one other thing about her, her sort of relationship with Geralt, and that that, that shows that however much they've been on and off and whatever she still you know cares deeply for him um dandelion asks her again um you know but when she says like you know pretend you've never heard about siri like you're you're going to be in trouble i wouldn't like anything bad to happen to you i like you too much and he asks her like well what what do you mean by that you keep saying you like me and that you owe me like what do you mean by that and she says you traveled with him thanks to you he was not alone you were a friend to him you were with him and she's like oh she like wants to like care for and protect Dandelion yeah. just because he was there for Geralt and he wasn't alone after they broke up. Yeah. Like that's It's really sweet yeah. actually. Yeah. Um he has a response to this that makes me think that this was the um the motivation for the 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 mountain breakup in the show because Dandelion's response to this was to lower his eyes and say he didn't get much from it. He didn't get much from our friendship. Yeah. Friendship in the past tense, incidentally. He had little but trouble because of me. He constantly had to get me out of some scrape. I, Help me. I, I thought this this had very strong echoes of how Geralt and Dandelion part in the show. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like Because we could do the scene like word for word in the, the first episode of season two, and it would feel completely like it followed from the mountain episode. Yeah. That would make sense. Like th- this obviously is going to be the first episode of season two because of just how it works. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a clear continuation of the theme, so it, it made sense how they struck and constructed it as they did. 
Yeah, and they had to find a way for Dandelion and not Geralt to not be together in the last episode of the show, mm. of season one. So, like, having them have a fight made sense for the show. Do you want to mention something about that? Uh, I've been there but never invited thing. Uh, mm-hmm. Because because it's interesting. Because, like, the specific phrasing is, um, you know, Dandelion says to Yen, uh, I'm guessing, you know, you know where that place is. I'm guessing, you know, the way I guess, you know, I'm guessing that you have visit- visited, you know, like, stayed there. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and the end replies with, I mean, of course I uh, sometimes dropped by, sometimes dropped by to visit, but I but I was never invited. Um, oh, in English it says I used to be a guest there sometimes, but never uninvited. No, in this in the in in the Lithuanian it's never invited, which makes a lot more sense. Oh, see, in in English it seems to be giving the impression that, like, I would only go if Geralt asked me to. I have never been there uninvited. Is the impression it's giving in English? And and the Lafina so is the opposite. Are... It's I've never been there invited. <laughs> These fucking translations. Yeah. Like Sasha? <laughs> Sasha, please help. Anyway. <laughs> um, like I will I, I, should really... I will say this. Okay, I will I'm... say this. Um <laughs> like like it kinda makes uh, an interesting kind of sense both ways. It's just that it implies very different things. Um, yes. That said, whichever way it is, whichever way is the case is actually the case. Uh, this does mean that the games are wrong, because in the be- near the beginning of the third game, um, Geralt has a dream of Yen being in Kerboron, and he wakes up and he says to Vesemir, "Listen, I dreamt of Yen being in Kerboron. It's very strange because she's never been there." Um, <laughs> well, I guess that means that, uh... that that's how he knows it's a dream initially. So yeah, it's, but it's... but she has been there. Yeah. yeah, CDPR don't read the books famously. <laughs> CDPR have never read the books, is my theory right now. Like, yeah. <laughs> like uh, but, um, I mean, they didn't include Siri or Yen in the first game, for the love of God, and they're two of the three main characters. <laughs> <laughs> because, because, as I, as I will remind everyone, they didn't find them interesting characters. <sighs> like the last two books are just the series show. Like, yeah, I don't. I really do not understand how you can seriously say that. Like <laughs> c- calling Yen uh-huh, not an interesting serious. character, like a character who starts off as like this hunchback, broken child, and becomes an all-powerful sorceress. <laughs> yeah, how is that not interesting? Like the. the- the, the reason why it's not interesting is because the lead devs were... Who were really into Triss, who, oh boy, I can't oh, wait yes! till next episode. We'll, <laughs> we'll, like, we'll, like, we'll come yeah. to that. Genuinely, like, like, I mean, like, a lot of the a lot of the problems of CDPR's read of this series can be summarized with it's literally just too fucking toxically masculine a read of The Witcher. It's the worst possible yes, reading of is... loads of the relationships, basically. It really is. I mean, yes, especially because so much of the series is about deconstructing toxic masculinity. Actually, yeah. it it genuinely is some of the fucking wrongest fucking reads of this series that are possible have all been inculcated into the into the into the kettle of the game series. Like, I love the game series, but seriously, they their their interpretation is the one that produces all the shit fucking fanboys who yell at Lauren Hisrich on Twitter for daring to cast actors who happen to be not white. Yeah, and for making Triss and Geralt just sort of friendly and not have loads of chemistry. Yeah, and 
it's the fact in the third game they managed to somehow like obviously in the books like Geralt and Yen there's sparks and stuff like that but in the third series they made people dislike Geralt and Yen's relationship which is the anchor of the entire book series they made people choose to undress there's no person who would read the books and in any universe when they get the chance to meet Yen again choose Triss nobody and yet the games basically force you to do that yeah yeah. And I mean, they they do so in like a very interesting way as well. As I mean, like you know, this is definitely something to talk about in the next episode, actually. But um, <laughs> but 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 I just feel like I need to say this. But like you know, like they they do this by actually, and this is paradoxical, erasing a lot of Triss's personality, uh, because I mean, yeah. like Mags, like be There's honest, strong with me, like Game Triss just feels like you know like a typical fucking incels ideal girlfriend who's just obsessed with Geralt for apparently for really no particularly good reason she's like and she's has past- no personality to speak of she's just played as a sort of beautiful playful super wise super she, powerful she, she, yeah. she is she is literally like designed to be a waifu in the games <laughs> like in yeah the, in the sense yeah. that like in the sense that they they made her really hot really playful yeah i mean the first time you see her in the winter three she's full frontal <laughs> like yeah the, yeah and she, she basically she literally gaslights him for three games for two and a half games maybe yeah 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 oh and yeah i mean like accidentally yeah. they actually ended up replicating the, the dynamic from the books but that's deliberately <laughs> not that's very clearly not intended <laughs> But yeah, that that's what they, they end up doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We will get to this next week. Yeah. Yes, let's not dwell on this. Let's get to the main, the final part of this chapter, which is... Yes. So, Yen has said um, about sort of how she's not going to go to Kaer Morin and cut to Ciri and Geralt arriving at Kaer Morin. Yeah. Um, we see Eskel so for the first time. They... We Pardon? see Eskel for the first time. Yes, we see Eskel for the first time. And uh, and and Vesemir is too later. We don't get a description of him. I don't think so. Um, we, we we have the the arrival um, at Kermorin, um, which is is portrayed like quite quite frighteningly. You know, it's it's dark. Um, you know, you have to step over a pile of bricks and through a broken arcade. <laughs> Forget um, bricks. You, know, you step o- step over several mounds made of skulls, <laughs> like. <laughs> yeah, well, that the, the skulls don't get mentioned. They're oh, yeah, at the very we'll beginning. That part, that's right. We're right there. Yeah, no, it's in the longer paragraph. Sorry. Um, yeah, they, they 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 there's mounds of skulls and broken teeth, and and, and the 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 building is collapsing, and, and and this is where he's taken poor little traumatized baby Siri. <laughs> like fucking Siri literally goes, "I'm afraid." Like as the first thing she says in this section, and Geralt just goes, "There's nothing to be afraid of." afraid of yeah yeah but it's hard to find a safer place in the whole world um there used to be a beautiful castle here a long time ago it's like well that isn't now <laughs> yeah and also i somehow think that the, <laughs> that the skull mounds have been there for a fucking while like clean up your shit yes. <laughs> <laughs> i can't believe i just my eyes just skipped over the skull mounds <laughs> you you just get used to skull mounds in this series. Yeah, skull mounds. Shrug. There's too many skull mounds in this whole series. Skull frankly. mounds are just a, 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 a staple of the genre at this point. Yeah. Um. So so we get this like again this like quite scary introduction. This like 
who comes? Siri heard a menacing metallic voice, which sounded like a dog's bark. And like, it's just, it's just Eskel. <laughs> um, if there, if there aren't any skullbounds in a particular scene in the Witcher books, you should just imagine that there are skullbounds. If they're not mentioned, <laughs> they're probably there. <laughs> like legit, they're just part of the aesthetic. <laughs> Hell, I mean, there, 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 there are skull bounds um, in the TV series everywhere. There's skull columns in the TV series. <laughs> but yeah, we get like this is this is like this wonderful um this wonderful trope of like approaching this like terrifying like bone covered collapsing castle and like the grim sort of voice emanating from it. But then as soon as they 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 step into the light, um. Well, they step into the light and she sees Eskel for the first time and says, he wears ordinary cl- human clothes, but he's no human. No human can have a face like that because Eskel's got quite a prominent facial scar. And, it, uh, you know, again, it's like, it's all like this quite scary scene that's set up. And then as soon as... Um, it has this... As soon as Geralt steps up, he says... Um, as soon as Geralt steps up, there's actually this quite touching scene of like Geralt steps up and Eskel turns around and suddenly, quickly, wordlessly, the witchers fell into each other's arms and wound their shoulders around each other tight and hard for one brief moment. And then everything's just okay. They don't do the, you know, compulsory to blokey men when they're hugging, doing the pat on the back. That's like when you know it's not like an embrace. That's a man hug. It's the, it's the three pats on the back. <laughs> Watch any men hug each other in any context. No, I mean you're not wrong, right? Like, <laughs> like I was gonna say, there's something really interesting here in how, like, when when they're approaching Kerimoran, and this is the first time mm-hmm. we ever see Kerimoran, remember? It's mm-hmm. mentioned before, but this is the first time we see it. Um, mm-hmm. Like, it has a very, you know, kind of uh, interwar horror film, like Nosferatu kind of approaching yeah. a castle. Like, like an, an evil-looking dark castle thing. And I think that's really fascinating in the context of, like, you know, how this series constantly grapples with what it means to be a monster and what it means to be a human. Yeah, uh, that's, that's a cool and, and Eskel looks approaching like, Dracula's castle. And, and Eskel looks this like a monster. This is Frankenstein. This is Transylvania. Yeah. Yeah, Eskel looks like a monster. But <laughs> is actually, as as Siri notes at the very end of this chapter, and, you know, it's beautiful, like, when she thinks that way, like, she goes, suddenly the fear disappeared. It disappeared without without a trace. Um, the fire, the, the howling red fire spread warmth, only warmth, and the dark shapes were actually the shapes of, of friends, of protectors. Um, and in their eyes shown curiosity, concern, and anxiety. And it's and it's and it's kind of wonderful, like how yeah, you're we're yeah. we're approaching Dracula's castle, but actually Dracula turns out to be a to be a top lad, um, <laughs> who's your Who dad's pal, <laughs> like and it's, it's, you know it's a fortress of solitude, not Transylvania or Castlevania. Yeah, 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 yeah. I I really loved um yeah the the um. The, in the English translation, it says the black silhouettes were the silhouettes of friends, carers, and that just like carers is such a sweet word to use. Well, for... yeah, like like uh, the, the the word the word um, used in Lithuanian actually probably best translates as like. I mean, yeah, it can translate as care. It can translate as like. It can translate specifically as foster parent. Um, Aww. Oh, like, that's really sweet. Uh, it, it, it's it, yeah, it's a kind of multifaceted word. Uh, yeah. 
I like the idea of the translation being something like foster parent or, or carer, just because it's like, again, it's like so much of the series is about deconstructing toxic masculinity. And again, we have this idea of like entering this like uber masculine space of like witchers that's an all male order and they have sort of, you know, no mothers and they have no no connection to, to family stuff. But then actually when you get there and he's 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 embraced like a brother and the, the, the she sees these men as carers, which is like such a like a feminine word to use. Mm. It's just a really sweet um, moment. Yeah, I think. Yeah, no, it's really is. It's um, it's wonderful. And but that's juxtaposed yeah. with then calling him wolf as well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think yeah. I think the fact that they call him wolf is really fascinating. By the way, because by being from the wolf school, they're all they're wolves. All wolves. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a good point. Oh, but he's the white wolf. He's, he is like yeah. It's yeah. it's short for the white wolf, but like it's it's just interesting. <laughs> Yeah, um, but what is um, it's it's very sweet, and of course, um, the 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 last line, you know, they've been asking, you know, who is this child wolf? Who is this girl? And he says, she's my, and then we get a little bit of a dot dot dot. We get a little bit of a description that says, she's our destiny, and I think that's really interesting because um, a couple of episodes ago, we talked about the idea of there being a sort of um maybe a prophecy or something that had been handed down among the witchers about asking about it. Yeah, I was just thinking, as you said. And you said, maybe this got retconned out, but we should still treat it as canon. And I think this is She's Our Destiny is sort of a a confirmation of that. Yeah, I mean, definitely, like, you know, because, like, obviously in in the short stories, it says that um, we believe that true child of destiny will not need trials. And they, in fact, do not give her trials. They only start immediately training her, as as we'll know in the next couple of chapters. Um, mm-hmm. Like and yeah, like like it, it, there's just a lot that would check out to seem to suggest the idea that there could be this some sort of prophecy that the witchers had, some sort of variation of Ifflin's prophecy. Because um, actually, I forgot to mention this, but at the at the scene with the oak, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the um, I can't I can't remember anymore if it was the druid or the priest. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, uh, but one of them one of them mentions Ifflin's prophecy, but he gives mm-hmm. an incorrect version. Like, like he gives a corrupted version. Like, and corrupted not just in terms that the text is different, but that the conclusion is different. Like, um, uh, let me flip open the exact phrasing. But um, the thing I distinctly remember was that unlike Ifflin's prophecy, which stipulates also the impending rebirth of the world, um, the the variation given by yes, the priest is uh, implies, yeah, just apocalypse. Um, specifically the phrasing he uses is and the time of contempt will come and the uh, leaf of the tree will die etc uh, etc et and then you know the uh, water will no longer flow down the down the uh, fucking valleys of rivers uh, and they will instead be frozen in ice and the white frost will come and the white light after it and the, and the world will end in, in the blizzard mm-hmm. and that that that's a different very that's a different version of the prophecy um like um it implies actual death like uh, like whereas Ifflin's prophecy implies resurrection yeah yeah because the Ethelin's prophecy um Ifflin's prophecy says that the world mm, will die but will be reborn from be the head of hair from son. the elder blood um yeah like um the priest's version of Ifflin's prophecy only implies the death it omits other details mm-hmm. like 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 
the type of axe or or the seed the, which will burst into flame, or even like the the the, the fact that the first sign of the apocalypse will be that lots of lots of elves will die. Like um, all of that is omitted um, because he has a potentially corrupted version of the prophecy um, that is not the exact same as the original, which is both cool world building and does confirm that there are many versions of what she actually said going around. Yes, which makes sense, right? Like, if it's written in Elder, there's going to be corrupted translations into Common. Yes, yes, yes. It's, 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 it's extremely, yeah. both both extremely reasonable world building, and and uh, that would that would indeed make it extremely possible that the Witchers also have their own um, corrupted, mm-hmm. um, nobody's quite sure why we're doing this version of the prophecy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or even just a, a yeah a partial version that was given to them about what their part in it's going to be without yeah. all the other details yeah yeah because yeah. I mean like to be fair like if they do have one it's so deprived of details that they don't even have a perfect text for it um, mm-hmm. like otherwise yeah, otherwise that would be given that... to us at some point right like but like but yeah. they clearly do seem to believe that some sort of child of destiny will come to them eventually and it'll be their responsibility to to train her and that she won't need the trials but will be a- somehow great able yeah. to be a witcher anyway yeah she will be great anyway yeah yes and I think that's a nice yeah. place to sort of tie things up with the book. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's uh, that's yeah, that's chapter one. I'm really excited to um get into chapter two. I think um, what's really great about the way he writes his chapters is um, you can still feel that he's a short story writer, right? Like this isn't a traditional chapter because within one chapter we are like moving between like two, like three different scenes basically, um, that are completely different, handling multiple different characters and and like places um so like these this isn't really traditional chapter structure so you still you still feel like he writes like a short story writer um and that he's trying to tell us a coherent narrative within a chapter which i think is quite cool yeah um yeah um so that sort of makes this really interesting that we're both looking at like a coherent novel as well as um someone who still sort of writes like a, a short story writer um gives us sort of a lot of meat to work with with each um chapter um Right. So um, that's our show. Thank you so much for listening and hope you'll join us again next time when we discuss chapter two of Blood of Elves and finally get into why for almost a year now we've been talking occasionally about why we hate Triss. (laughs) Our music is Medieval Abstraction by Lucas Perny and Miloslav Kolar, which you can find at freemusicarchive.org. And you can find us at, at the, as at the Witcher cast on Twitter and Tumblr, or email us at castapodtoyourwitcher at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye.